0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHearNowNetwork.com slash Jack. First, again, Happy New Year to you. And I'd like to talk tonight about renewal or seeing a renewed heart, seeing things in a fresh way. Um, I got a call some years ago from the editor of one of the women's magazines that you see on newsstands. I think it was Cosmo, but I'm not sure. And she asked if I could write a little piece on um, uh, New Year's resolution, and in particular on lasting change, how to make change last. (laughs) And I said, wait a second, you've called the Buddhist, we believe in change and not the lasting part. I'm sorry, you've got dialed the wrong number, you know. <laughs> when Zen Master Suzuki Roshi um, first came to San Francisco and began to teach, um, and famously talked about beginner's mind, um, Those of us who were interested in Buddhism back in those days, I think Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind came out maybe in 1969 or 70 or something like that. Um, I remember talking to my colleague and dear friend Sharon Salzberg. She was already practicing and meditating, training in a very wonderful way in India. And someone gave her the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And she looked at it and he said, oh, this is for for beginners and sort of tossed it aside and didn't realize until sometime later when she read it, that beautiful statement where Suzuki Roshi says, the, the goal of meditation, the end point, the culmination, the fruition of practice is to keep a beginner's mind. So we begin with beginner's mind, and then if we're lucky, we deepen it or return to it in some wonderful way. Or as Marcel Proust says in... Um, remembering things in the past, he says that the, the real voyage is the, di- is the discovery of seeing where you are with new eyes. And that's the possibility for us, to step out of the habitual patterns of thought and perception, to step out of what's called the small sense of self, the body of fear, it's sometimes called, and to begin to see things in a fresh and a new way. There's a story about an old monastery. It was a uh, Christian monastery that had fallen on hard times, and it was one of those orders that used to have monasteries all over, but gradually it began to die out as people became more modern and less interested in the contemplative life. And this was kind of the the father house, the main place, the other ones had closed. and All that was left, there were five or six old monks. um, And uh, they were afraid that with their passing, their whole order, contemplative order, would die out. And they were sitting around one day with the abbot, talking, what can we do? And the abbot said, well, you know, in the other part of the woods, from where we are, you know, there's a wise man, an old rabbi who lives there. Um, Maybe I'll go over and ask for his advice. So the abbot walked through the woods and paid his respects to the rabbi who he'd known for many years. And they sat down and talked about how tough it was in the spiritual industry these days, you know. <laughs> the world becomes so much more materialistic and contemplative especially and this and that. And then he asked the rabbi, well, do you have any advice for us to help us? And he just wept, some tears rolled down his cheeks. He said, "I was really nothing I can tell you, but I had this funny dream that um, the Messiah is there in your monastery. I don't know what it means, um, but um, I wish you well and send him back. So the abbot came back and they said, so what did, the, what did the wise rabbi say? He said, well, we wept together. He said, I have nothing really of value to say except I had, he had this funny dream that the Messiah was somehow in our monastery. And they all began to ponder what could this mean and they thought, well, do, could it mean the abbot? I mean, he's been their leader, and he's perhaps that's who it is. But on the other hand, it might have meant Brother Thomas, who is certainly a holy man, a man of light. He couldn't have meant Brother Elred. He gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back, he's virtually always right. Maybe it's him. Maybe the rabbi meant that's the Messiah, but surely not Brother Philip. He's so passive of nobody. Um, Of course, mysteriously, he does have a gift for somehow magically appearing by your side just when you need him. Maybe he's the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi couldn't have meant me. He couldn't possibly me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet suppose he did. Suppose. (laughs) Suppose I am. That could I, whatever. And so they began to contemplate in this manner, and the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance (laughs) that one of them might be the messiah and on the off off chance that each monk himself might be the messiah they began to teach themselves with extraordinary respect. Now the forest in which this monastery was situated was quite beautiful and people occasionally came to visit and picnic on its little lawn and wander the paths and as they did so in the year that followed Without being aware of it, they sensed this new aura of extraordinary respect that began to surround the five old monks and radiate out from across the place. There was something strangely attractive about the way they were treating one another, compelling. Hardly knowing why, people came back to play and picnic and show this place to others, bring their friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men began to talk to them. Older monks and after a while one asked if he could join and another in a few years The monastery had once again become a thriving order thanks to the gift of the rabbi Uh, So what does it mean to see the people that you live with Or the trees surrounding your home or your apartment or the You know community that you live in um afresh and anew. And what does it mean to see those that you live with um, with, and treat them with this kind of dignity and respect? And to treat one another, to treat yourself as well with that kind of dignity and respect. And one of the beautiful things in both the Buddhist teachings and in all these neuroscience studies that have been done in the last decades is that it turns out to be possible to step out of the blinders, if you will, of our ordinary perception and see in a fresh way and see anew, step out of the fear and anxiety and prejudice and all of the things that blind us and instead to see with eyes of understanding and with a beginner's mind. There is a kind of Shift of identity that begins to happen as you sit in meditation. (laughs) Instead of being the thoughts and the worries and the plans and the tingles and itches and pain in your body and the various emotions of sad and happy and so forth, you become the witnessing of it. You become the loving awareness that says, Oh, yes, Um, here are these thoughts and here are these views and opinions and here the ways that, you know, I experience this body and mind. And when you look, you start to see that who you are isn't so rigid or fixed that you can actually look anew at your very own mind and your very own life. And to live in a wise way, you really have to do that. Um, I've got a few passages from this new book that I'm just finishing. on, on inner freedom. Sarah, a single mom with two kids, found out that her eight-year-old daughter, Alicia, had a serious form of leukemia, and she was terrified, anxious, grieving. For the first year, they went through long rounds of chemotherapy, hospital stays, doctors. A fearful sadness filled the house, and anxiety covered, colored Sarah's days. And then one afternoon, out on a walk, Alicia said, Mama, I don't know how long I'm going to live. But I want them to be happy days. It was a splash of cold water on her mother's face. Sarah had to step out of the fearful melodrama and meet her daughter's freedom with her own to return to a trusting spirit. Sarah grabbed her daughter and did a little waltz holding her tight and she felt herself let go. And in time, Alicia healed. She's now 22, just graduated college. But even if she hadn't, what kind of days would you have her choose? You can't do that much with your life if you're miserable after all. You might as well be happy. So it's possible to renew and to start again. And as we sit, we begin to learn this in a kind of visceral and immediate way. We learn, for example, the ability to forgive. To see the resentments and the sufferings and the... Betrayals. Anybody in this room been betrayed? Don't bother. You know, to raise your hand. And then it's like human incarnation. All right, we've been betrayed and we've been hurt by others. And not only that, anybody in this room hurt anybody else ever? Never mind. Don't raise your hand. And instead of living in um, shame and guilt and instead of living in anger and hatred and resentment, you begin to realize that that's not the way you want to tend your heart. And it's not what you want to hold on to. And you begin to let things go and start anew. And there are all these beautiful practices of forgiveness that we teach here. And you're you know, welcome to listen to the various online teachings or read books and so forth on those practices. You do them over and over and gradually they change you. So you start again with forgiveness. Everybody needs to learn it. We all have things to forgive and to ask forgiveness of. And then you have to learn how to let go. My teacher, Ajahn Shah said, if you let go a little, you'll be a little happy. If you let go a lot, you'll be a lot happy. If you let go completely, things will be easy for you. And I don't think he meant in letting go that you didn't have courage or dignity or or care about things, but he meant the letting go of your views about how the world should be Uh, because it's just not that way, sorry. If in the last few years you haven't discarded a major opinion or or, or acquired a new one, please check your pulse. You may have died, you know. We are needing to renew ourselves and both with forgiveness and letting go what you also learn in meditation is how to be present with your particular measure of suffering. Anybody not have a measure of suffering? Again, you can raise your hands and you can have your eight dollars back. <laughs> we have this kind of irrational belief that pain can be avoided. Okay? We have this kind of irrational belief that, uh, that pain can be avoided. Where suffering can be avoided. Anybody not have it? Praise and blame, gain and loss. And one of the things that happens as we learn to meditate and there grows this deepening sense of inner freedom is that you grow in your capacity to bear witness to the suffering of life as well as to its beauty. You know, when Martin Luther King said, um, we will match your physical force with soul force, you know, He spoke about a spirit in human beings that can see and allow ourselves to be touched by the sufferings of life and not have it, not drown in it, not have it take us over because our spirit becomes strong in our capacity of compassion and presence for that as well. Um, So letting go doesn't mean that you don't have difficulties. In fact, I think, in some way, that the difficulties that we have, um, I won't say that they grow more in your spiritual practice. That would be a little dangerous to say to you. You'd all leave. Um, (laughs) But um, you actually become more aware of them. Um, And they teach you in a different way. Because you don't turn your gaze from the world. And so you see its tainted glory, its unbearable beauty, and its ocean of tears. And you become someone who's engaged and connected with the world because you have this capacity. And I remember when I was uh, nine years old, or eight years old, maybe, we were living in Buffalo, New York, and it was midwinter, and so the snow was, you know, 40 feet high, or whatever it is. Buffalo gets a lot of snow. Um, and it was a Blizzard, and it was icy cold wind. And we all bundled up, my twin brother and I, and my other brothers, to go out and play. Maybe it was nine. And I was skinny as a rail and shivering out there, you know. And my twin brother looked at me and he said, It's not that cold. You know, I mean, wind chill was probably 15 below or something. He said, it's not that cold. He took off his hat and he started laughing. And he took off his scarf and he started laughing. He said, it's not that cold. Then he took off his jacket and started laughing. He took off his sweater. He took off his shirt. There he is, half naked. And just dancing around the wind saying, you just think it's cold, you know. And it was a great moment. i remembered it my whole I told him about it. He didn't even remember it. But it touched me in some really important way. He's, a, he's somebody who has a very free spirit. And, and I learned something in that moment from him, that you can be present for the way things are and that your spirit can be free. Or to put it another way, even in the midst of the sufferings of life, you can love anyway. You can forgive, you can let go of how it's supposed to be. And you sit and you practice and you love anyway. So another story, and this is of Alvaro whose father died and he had six siblings and they fought. Um, Some of them, you know, lied and greedy to try to get control of the family construction company. And in two, two years they nearly robbed Alvaro of his inheritance, but they were his family, you know. Parents of his beloved nieces and nephews. He'd been with them for every family gathering, weddings, holidays. Um, Family was his life. Um, And he realized he had to learn to live through broken trust to find some deeper trust. After a year, he realized he could only trust them to be themselves. But he didn't want them to colonize his heart. He told his lawyer to use every legal means to protect his inheritance, but he would not give up loving them. By seeing them clearly, he regained a trust in himself. And through sometimes legal painful battles, he learned he could care for himself and trust in a new and a wiser way. There's something in sitting about learning how to trust yourself, your experience, and more than that, your capacity to be present for this human life that you've been given. Now... What helps? Here we are um, living in a time in which we're fed the images and the difficulties of the world, the continuing warfare, the racism, the environmental destruction. And yet, and yet, um, that's not the whole game because the world is also marvelous and, and beautiful and renewing itself. Um, and people, there's a thousand acts of goodness and probably for every act of, of cruelty. But they don't get measured and they certainly don't get reported in, you know, in the news. So one of the things that helps is to set your intention. And last uh, month when I came on December, when we sat together December 16th or 17th, we did um, New Year's vows, Bodhisattva vows, those of you who are here, we took time to reflect on what vows or what intention we would want to use to set the direction of our heart. And I read some traditional vows, you know, in Zen you sit, and child sitting, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, you know. It's a very formal kind of vow-taking. And, and as I mentioned, sentient beings often don't want to be saved by you, but that's a whole other thing, especially the ones in your family and stuff like that. But it has a much deeper meaning. And the meaning is that you vow to bring your goodness and your wisdom and your dignity and your blessings and your creativity to this world that you vow to meet each experience or each person with compassion. And then it doesn't matter how many beings there are, all of them get met in that way. And so people made their vows and sometimes they were very, very simple ones. You know, um, the vow to... My vow is to be kind to myself and others. Or my vow is to carry peace in a world where they're trying to get me to be afraid. Or my vow is to see beauty in every being that I meet, in every person that I encounter, in every place I go. Those are pretty cool vows. Um, And what was interesting in the years that I lived in the Buddhist monastery is we had to renew our vows every two weeks. We didn't like wait for the calendar year to come around and say, oh yeah, made those New Year's resolutions, got about midway through January, and that was it, you know. (laughs) After two weeks, you would meet and you'd recite your vows again um, and acknowledge that you had broken them or you hadn't fulfilled them so well. And then you take them anew with someone as a witness. And it was a really beautiful ritual to do. It was the renewing that said, we can start again. It is never too late to begin again. So forgiveness, letting go, loving anyway. Um, And with a vow we start to be able to see, to set an intention, to see the world in a different way. It's as if we have an image, I could live with uh, peace in my heart no matter where I go, or I could live with kindness toward myself and whomever I meet, or see beauty wherever I am. So, um, as most of you know, in the 14th and 15th century, um, the master poet, Dante, Um, wrote this amazing work called The Divine Comedy. The entire Divine Comedy was inspired by Beatrice, by a single moment of love. Um, It began when Dante was in Florence, standing near the Ponte Vecchio, this amazing medieval bridge that crosses the Arno River. It was just before 1300, and Dante saw this young woman, Beatrice, standing on the bridge. He was a young man, she a little bit younger, And she touched his heart. She ignited in him a vision that contained all of eternity. He didn't speak to her and he saw her very little. Then he spoke to her a bit and then she died um, in the plague. And Dante was stricken with loss. And she'd become somehow the carrier of some spirit, the bridge from his heart to something eternal. And his whole work of the Divine Comedy was inspired by that moment of seeing her on the bridge. Now, 650 years later, during World War II, the American army was moving up the Italian peninsula, um, and the German army was retreating, um, and the Germans were blowing up everything, including the bridges across the various rivers, to stop the Americans' progress. But no one wanted to blow up Ponte Vecchio because. Beatrice had stood on it, and Dante had written about her. So the leaders of the German army made radio contact with the Americans, and in plain language, they said they would leave Ponte Vecchio intact if the Americans would promise not to use it for their troops. And the promise held. The bridge was not blown up, and not one American soldier or piece of equipment ran across it. The bridge was spared in a modern, ruthless war because Beatrice had stood on it, And Dante had fallen in love. And there's some way in each of us, you can remember the day that you fell in love. You know, on a spring day with the crocuses and the plum blossoms. (laughs) Or in an autumn day with that crisp smell of burning leaves and you met your Beatrice or your Brent or whoever he or she was. And if you never fell in love, because of the sufferings of your life. As Rumi says, today is a good day to start. (laughs) But there's something about remembering that your heart has been that open and that touched. And again, it inspires, it becomes part of the vow or the vision, I vow to live in this way, in this world, to move through the world in this way. And it gives you a bigger picture of things. Another story from this new book. Mm. This is about a woman. um, And I started to collect these stories because I asked people stories about freedom. And I got all these letters and accounts and things. And Whitney went back to St. Louis because her mom um, was scheduled for hip surgery and her father was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And she wanted her parents to stay at home. But with each stage of their disability, it got harder and harder. And her brother, who lived nearby, was not involved at all. He wanted his sister to help take care of it. You know how that happens in families, right? Um, so she took the leave from work, and the house was in shambles. And her father couldn't care for herself well, and her mom's fracture obviously was going to take a long time to heal, and she knew they couldn't stay there. Um, So she walked up the hillside she'd known growing up and she wept. She didn't want to lose her childhood home. She wanted her parents to have their wish of staying there till the end. And she didn't want to lose her parents. And when she reached the top of the hill and opened her eyes, she sat as she had in meditation. And then she looked and saw the vast Midwestern fields stretch to the horizon. The sky filled with cumulus clouds and the many small houses clustered at the edge of the town. Instinctively, she felt less alone. She could sense how everything had its seasons, arriving and departing, flourishing and struggling, coming into being, fading away. How many people, she wondered, are in the same predicament, even this day in America, in Canada, in Europe, across the world. And as she breathed with more ease, her mind opened further. I'm not the only one with aging parents. And as the space opened, her heart settled, she felt more trust, and she realized, we can do this, we can do this. So, meditation isn't really about having a goal of a particular state, although calm comes, well-being can come, joy and light can come at some times. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's restless or lonely or anxious or all the kinds of you know, emotions that we might struggle with arise. Um, And that's all good. It's not that you're supposed to have a particular experience, but what happens as you sit is things begin to settle and you realize that you're actually not in control. Who's in control of their mind here? Tell it not to think. All right, no more thought. I want you to stop thinking. Does it listen Has a mind of its own? Or how about your emotions? I only want to have happy, positive emotions. (laughs) Does your heart listen to that? Come on. And you start to see that who you are is a river, a river of thoughts and perceptions and feelings, some of them healthier, some of them more destructive or unhealthy. But they're all changing, unstable, insecure. Now, you sit and you also notice that no matter what you do, You can't have all pleasure and no pain. You can't have all gain and no loss. You can't have all praise and no blame. That the world is woven with these opposites. Praise and blame come. Pleasure and pain. Gain and loss come. And you start to realize it is the way that it is. And then there comes the realization that all the feelings and thoughts is not exactly who you are. And I talk about this often other evenings, um, because I like the image. When you look in the mirror, you notice you've aged, right? Face it. (laughs) Wrinkles drooping, you know, turning gray, no fur left at all, you know. Um, All the kind of stuff, as Wes Nisker, my dear colleague and friend says, Hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard, you know. It's, but the weird thing is that you don't feel older. There you are looking in the mirror, Do you know that experience? And that's because it's only your body that's aged. And your body exists in time as an infant and a young child and a, you know, and a teenager or and, a, and a young person that grows up middle-aged and older and so forth. But the one who knows, the witness of it, is awareness itself, is consciousness. And that doesn't exist in time. And so as you sit, you begin to rest, not in the manipulation of experience, although you can use your breath to quiet, things like that. But you become more and more the witness of experience. You become what my teacher, Ajahn Chah, called the one who knows you become loving awareness that says, oh, here's a happy thought and there's a frightened thought and here's this emotion that's delicious and here's one that's deliciously awful, you know. And you begin to sense all these things not as something that you have to react to, but that there's a greater sense of spaciousness like Whitney found on the hillside. There's a greater sense of presence and an ability to know that life is renewing itself in every breath and every moment, and who you are is the witness to this game and this dance. And so you can choose and you can guide yourself through it in skillful ways, but you don't get so lost and reactive and caught in it because you say, Ah, oh, it's always going to renew itself in some new form. There grows a very deep trust, a trust not in the experience itself, but in the capacity. Of your heart to bear witness to it all with love and presence, and when you meet somebody who's wise, that's kind of how they are. They say, "Yeah, this is how it is—the human incarnation. How's it going in there?" You know, and you go, "Yeah, that's right. It's got its measure of sorrows and its measure of beauty." A friend of mine, who. had practiced yoga and then done some kundalini yoga when she was, oh, in her late teens, 18, 19, 20, 21, very avidly, then got pregnant pretty young. And she went into the hospital to have her first child. And she ended up um, being left alone part of the time, just the way it was back in in those days. I don't remember what it was, late 50s or 60s probably. Yoga was just becoming fashionable. Um, and she was in long labor, and there was a lot of pain, as there often is in labor. Um, and she was somewhat frightened, and didn't know what to do, and tried to do her yoga practice, and did more breathing, and so forth, which helps a little bit, but mostly it was just overwhelming. And then she said, all of a sudden, something else happened. She said, and I felt this force, like the kundalini or something, just take over my body. And my body began to move with the contractions. And all of a sudden, it wasn't my body. She said, this wild thing happened. I became all the mothers of the world. I was there all by myself. And I realized it wasn't me, this person, giving birth to someone else. But I became the world giving birth to itself. And I was all the women who'd ever had children. You know, and all the beings who would birth new beings out of their body, and I, she said, I realized that that it wasn't personal to me at all. That I was part of some enormous life force that moved and lived through me. And then she said, I gave birth this beautiful son, and and then the kundalini kind of filled my body, and I was filled with light, and I was trembling, and so forth. And the doctor said, What's the matter with you? And they gave me a bunch of valium to kind of get. <laughs> Because that's what they did in those days, right? Sorry about your Kundalini lady, you know. But the truth is that we know this. We know that there is a bigger game than your checkbook, you know, or your um, to-do list, or the... Things that you have to manage, and you have to pay attention to them, and take care with them, and with some impeccability and dignity. But that's not really what life is about. Yes, you have to serve and work, and you know different ways. Um, but you're also invited to have a free spirit, and that's really the invitation of the Buddha. He said that all of these teachings are to offer what he called the sure heart's release, this capacity to to be free in your being and in your spirit with praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain, all the things that make up human incarnation, to say, yes, this is so, and here we are. Isn't this amazing and beautiful? And then you bring blessings where you are. I had a friend who just came back from doing the... um, three-month retreat that we have had annually for the last 40 years at our center on the east coast insight meditation society just like we have an annual two-month retreat here for the last 15 or 16 years or more people will come for those of you who've never done a day long or a week it may sound crazy and it is a little bit but um people will come the whole group of them this winter they'll be starting in a in a few weeks they'll be a close to 100 people who come in silence for two months to sit and meditate and be present. So he wrote about his experience and he said, in the beginning I sat, for the first few weeks there was a lot of pain, all the stored tension I carried in uh, my body and the conflicts of the year, they all played out and I just sat with them, he said. And then eventually, eventually they released and my mind became clear like, Ajahn Chah's description like a clear forest pool and many rare and wonderful animals came and went but I was still, I was the vast stillness of the pool he said and then after time I was resting in this state of presence and a deep compassion arose as if Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion came not as a person but as a kind of inner strength like an enormous cosmic tree and I realize that compassion doesn't alleviate it doesn't take away pain rather it gives us the strength to endure it. Kuan Yin is an energy provided out of compassion to help us make the long difficult painful journey of return to our own true nature and the bodhisattvas and beings who serve the world are Kuan Yin's foot soldiers, beings who are little towers of strength and lend their care and strength to others who are suffering. And so I stayed in compassion as a practice for some two weeks and then somehow it died away and I touched the place of stillness that the Buddha speaks of, of profound calm and contentment and wisdom, a kind of peace in the midst of all things. And I saw all the difficulties and trials and tribulations and afflictions of my own life and others, not as mistakes, but as opportunities for the heart to learn how to be truly free, that that was really what my life was about. And I began to rest and trust more and more the stream of pure awareness outside of time, no beginning and no end and he goes on and on and on and on and you listen to that and say, okay, well, that's nice. He had a good retreat, right? <clears throat> but I have to go to work tomorrow, and I've never done a day, or maybe I did a week, but, you know, and it lasted for a while. I had that nice Vipassana facelift afterward. I felt just glorious for about three weeks, you know, and then I get a call from my ex-husband, and it all went away or whatever. Um... But it's not really about retreat. It's about reminding us of something that we know that's so true um, that no matter what happens to you, no matter the circumstances of your life, you can return to this place of knowing to become the one who knows. And we need it in these times because things, you know, conspire in the culture around us. Um, to make us forget who we really are, to become consumers or to become politicized or to become, in different ways, to lose connection with our own deepest values. This is from the poet Robert Frost. It was written a while ago, but it seems rather au courant. He says, there's absolutely no reason for being rushed along with the rush. Isn't that a great line? There's absolutely no reason for being rushed along with the rush. Everyone should be free to go very slow. What you're hanging around in the world for is for something mysterious to occur for you. And so he's kind of inviting intuition, mystery, not to go along with the rush even though the rush is there. Everyone should be free to go very slow. What a line. Of course, he was a poet. He'd sit around and (laughs) write poetry lines. But when you come to meditation or when you sit at home and you start to quiet the mind and soften the heart, you know, this gives you the ability, the practice, to begin to see things in a new way. And you need a practice, for most of us anyway, because the speed and intensity of our own thoughts and the world and driving and traveling and tending and being online, you know, 19 hours a day and all the rest of it, um, it can take you over. So a practice of just being with your breath or a practice of the body scan, of just moving your attention through your body and relaxing each part of your body as you do, or the practices we did of Becoming the loving awareness and naming what arises. There is um, worry and there is planning mind and there is doubt. Oh, and there's creativity um, and there's a little bit of sadness or regret. Thank you for your, you know, noticing me. There's judgment. Thank you for your opinion. And you start to notice the experiences and then as, as you do, you can also notice your reactions to them your judgments, your fears, all of that. And more and more you become able to become the loving awareness itself, the witnessing of it that says, yeah, this is part of being human. This is part of being human. Now in India, going back to the the, the story of the Buddha's awakening the night of his enlightenment, as most everybody knows this famous story, the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree and then he was attacked by Mara. And Mara is the name for the Indian god who represents greed, hatred, ignorance, death, uh, delusion, and so forth. Um, And so one more account from this book. Emily, who had a history of depression and anxiety, um, needed to learn a kind of inner freedom. And she found it by befriending Mara. Um, Each time that Mara would come to the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha remained unmo- unmoved and simply said, I see you, Mara. At which point, Mara threw up his hands at being recognized, skulked away, and then came in a new form, sometimes as temptation, sometimes as aggression, sometimes as doubt or worry. In some later accounts, the Buddha even invited his old friend Mara to come back for tea once they'd kind of gotten through their little relationship problems. <laughs> Mara appeared to Emily in the form of shame, and confusion whenever money was tight or work was difficult whenever she gained a couple of pounds or her ex-boyfriend called mara would attack her it was a familiar pattern from childhood emily held a sense that something was wrong with her i'm not charming enough good looking not smart or creative or fast enough the list went on and on Gradually through her practice of mindfulness and loving awareness, Emily gained a more spacious perspective and was able to see Mara clearly. To do this, she first learned to feel her ever-changing breath, witness her body's aches and pains with some equanimity and kindness. Then she learned to sit and be curious about the different states that visited her mind and heart. She learned to name them as the Buddha had, O Mara, O Despair. Oh, shame. Is that you again? I see you. An amazing thing to be able to say that. And then she learned to compassionately decline their grasp. Even if you want to have tea, I can't let you stay too long because I have another engagement. Sorry. <laughs> and you begin to get a sense from that very simple account of your own freedom of heart, that you can be the witness to your fears or confusions or in her case the shame or anxiety and say, oh yeah, is that you again, Mara? Yes, thank you for your opinion, your dance. Um, Here's a little tea. Now I've got better things to do, thank you. You don't want to struggle against because that's Mara itself. Instead you become bigger. You become the loving awareness. And you become part of the whole. Because as you get quiet, as the mind quiets and the heart softens, you start to feel that you're not separate from the world. That uh, your family and your community, the environment that we know so well, the air we breathe, the water that we drink, it's all a part of our body. It's a part of us. It turns out the earth is your body. This is just a little piece of your body that you tend to claim as your own. And Mother Teresa said, the trouble with you is you draw your family circle too small. But this is your family. I mean, in most traditional cultures, they know that, and they use all those honorifics of uncle and auntie, and grandmother would be, you know, Uncle Barack, right? And Auntie Hillary, you know, (laughs) Grandfather Bernie. (laughs) And I don't know what you would say about Donald. (laughs) (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. We all have one in our family, we gonna say that. <laughs> but they're, they're respected as, you know, this is part of our extended human family. It's the way that it works. Now, the way that politics is going, they want to sell you on terror and anxiety. I mean, that's how, that's how politics is pretty much always work. You make people afraid and then you, you know, You support the dictator or the politician or whatever who's going to keep you safe, you know. Um, But of course, life is more mysterious and uncertain than that. Um, And when you become comfortable with change and uncertainty, when you become comfortable taking your seat in the middle of your human incarnation, just as you are, with the joys and sorrows and with your blessings and capacities and with your, you know, with your struggles and you become the witness of it, you become the loving awareness then whole different capacities open in you because then you feel fulfilled, you're not always looking to be loved or admired or something because you admire yourself and you love yourself you know, and you value yourself and you value others And then I remember actually reading, um, years ago I was reading Krishnamurti and he had all these sort of highfalutin things about the nature of consciousness and mind and so forth. And it was kind of cool, but sometimes a little hard to understand. And He was sometimes a little bit of a scold, you should understand, but you don't. Come on, Krishnamurti, give me a break. (laughs) But anyway, um, but the passage that really stuck out for me when he talked about awakening, he said, and then if you're going along the road and there's a big stone in the road, even if you can avoid it, you move it over to the side because it's not your road, it's our road. Um, and I took that to heart. I read that, I think I was like 19 still. In fact, even when I'm driving, if there's like something that's dangerous to the road, I pull over if I possibly can and get it out of the road partly in honor of what I read but I think also partly as a symbol of um, what I'm learning which is to care for us to care for our family and so you get quiet and then what else is there to do somebody's people are hungry you feed them you know um, there, there's injustice you do what you can to alleviate it I remember I think it was last month We was talking about all the migrants and the refugees, which we may well be seeing more of, you know, and the the fears that people are trying to, you know, put into your mind of immigrants and refugees and so I should have worn my keffiyeh tonight, actually. <laughs> uh, I've been wearing it more again. And I asked, um, how many people would be willing to consider, if you could, taking you know, a Syrian refugee, a child or a woman, into your own home, and half the hands went up. Thank you, everybody's hands went up, those of you who are here. Um, Because that's what happens. You get quiet, and there comes to you a sense of belonging that's different than the desire and the struggle. There comes in the sitting a sense of connection with your own inner dignity and well-being, and with that sense of vastness of time, stepping out of time. And then you tend the world. And you don't do it just because you're supposed to or it's a good bodhisattva thing to do or you feel, you know, <laughs> worried or something. I've t- said, told this story quite a few times in the last couple of years. Um, Wes Nisker, again, colleague, friend who teaches here, went to interview Gary Snyder, the great poet, Pope Pulitzer Prize winning environmentalist, earth household, really great icon of, of American environmental movement, um, who's now 84 and said, Gary, you know, you now see um, the environmental destruction, the loss of species, the problems with the rising ocean, the climate change. What advice do you have for us at this time? And Gary looked back and he said, don't feel guilty. If you're going to save it, don't save it out of guilt or anger. Those are the things that actually made the problem. If you're going to save it, save it because you love it. And love is really the only force that's big enough to counter the forces of greed and hatred and ignorance in the world. You know, it's the... It's the force that allows mothers to lift cars off their children. Um, It's that great capacity that we have of the heart. Friends of mine were recently in Dharamsala in this this last fall. And there was a a special gathering. They helped actually to arrange it with um, Archbishop Tutu from South Africa and the Dalai Lama. And they were spending a week together doing a dialogue to create a book on joy. And if you've ever seen Tutu, he laughs a lot. He has this kind of giggle and he's totally wonderful. And of course, I think people go to see the Dalai Lama mostly to hear him laugh. You know, yes, those nice Tibetan teachings and so forth. Annie Lamott, our local wonderful writer and humorist, says, laughter is carbonated holiness, right? (laughs) And the people who were there in Dharamsala said these, they they were like two kids. They set each other off and they giggled and they laughed through a good part of that whole week of teachings on happiness. This is the invitation. That you become the steward of your own heart in a wise way. um, That you train or practice what it means to be able to stay present so that when Mara visits, and Mara is kind of amazing. He gets around, you know. Ancient India, no problem. Modern San Francisco, where do you live? Here I am, you know. So when Mara comes, you can say, oh, I see you, Mara, and not get lost in the fear and the confusion and the suffering. And it's not to say that there doesn't need to be tenderness and healing for us, that we have traumas that need care, um, that there are pains that really need to be tended to. But that's not the end of the story. The first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching is that life has suffering in it, so you can't make it perfect without pain or suffering. But that's the beginning of the story. The third noble truth is that there's an end, there's a cause to it, the second truth, and there's an end to it. And the end of it is really the freedom of spirit and freedom of heart, your own joy, carbonated holiness. Mm. And you have this in you. You have seeds of beauty. You have undeniable dignity, dignity that you were born with that cannot be taken from you. You have a fundamental goodness. That was born in you and an innocence that can't be taken that's inviolable in the human spirit and so we meditate not to become good meditators or to have experiences although those come and they're wonderful but really to learn this deeper trust this capacity to be present with a loving heart and with wisdom